You're listening to Hainai by Matsi Dapu. Episode 31 Jay and Dooley. Mikey? Sir? How many times have I told you? Keep calling me sir and you'll make me shrivel up and die on the spot. Hmm. Only if you stop talking to me like I'm still 14, Dooley. Alright, alright. Detective Donna. You're sounding positively chipper today. What happened? I found someone. There was a case and a woman. All the hallmarks of a supernatural one. The ones that only ever leave bodies. But this time, she survived. And her neighbor, she knew something. Tried to keep it a secret. But after Murphy and I convinced her we could be trusted, she showed us power. Magic. She found a monster, and we were able to take this thing down together. It's a bigger breakthrough than we've ever had in any of our cases. Amazing. Who is she? Does she have a tool, an object of power? She wears these, um, pendants? But I don't know. Is that something you've encountered before? Something like that. I had a friend. He had these tools. Couldn't believe it at first, even if I'd seen him do impossible things from the jump. This is the same friend you ran with back in the day? Or what was uh, what was his name? <laughs> name? No, no, he didn't have one. Claimed it was dangerous for people to know his name. First I thought he was having me for a laugh, but the things he dealt with... I had no choice in the end but to trust his judgment, but if I mentioned him before, I called him Jay. Would you mind telling Rick Murphy that while I appreciate the sentiment, he doesn't need to keep trying to introduce me to young men who are into polar bears. I don't even think I count, I was never that airy to begin with. If you figure out a way to get Murphy to stop being, well, stop being Murphy, <laughs> let me know. I've known the guy for 15 years, and I gave up a decade ago. Well, I suppose I'll have to weather being desirable to so many attractive young men. But you didn't call me in for that, did you? What is it? Last time you got in touch, you wanted me to look into an old family name? Was it Langford? If you've heard the name, any information you can give us would help. But we also found another name. George May. Don't ring a bell, I'm afraid. Langford actually sounded familiar, but I couldn't get it in any of my notes. <sighs> if only I had Jay's book. Book? Before he... Well... Before. <laughs> I remember Jay mentioning a book that he'd been writing about the horrors we'd been facing up to that point. He didn't tell me as much as I'd like. I get the impression he was trying to protect me from something for all the good that did me. I hardly remember now, but I think it had to do with names. People rather than monsters. There's very little in common between you two. He was much more charming, much more outgoing, he smiled like the summer sun. But the one thing you do have in common is how tight-lipped you are. How close you keep things to the chest. He liked to obfuscate, while you, you just don't say a word. And dare people to speak to you with those sharp, justicey eyes of yours. I tell you things. More than I tell most people. 
As though that doesn't prove my point when you only ever call me for answers to a case. I'll be calling you now and before long, commiserating of your inability to communicate. No, please, no. Duly, this book. If I knew where it was, you'd be the first to know. But when he... Well, the last time I saw him, he didn't mention anything about it. I've done my best to try and track it down. But wherever it might be, I'm not the man to ask. Thanks anyways. Oh, by the way, I, well, we, found a photo of some of these elders. I'm sending it over. Maybe you recognize them, or find something we missed? Of course, I'll do what I can. Not like there's much else to do in retirement. Huh. Don't think I don't listen to your calls into that show. What's it called? Uh, DJ in the Dark? Well, how else will I get my stories out into the world? Have you ever considered writing a book? <laughs> oh, no. I've had my fill of writing, thank you. Good night, Donna. <laughs> Good night, Dewey. Well, I don't remember the last time I was on the receiving end of an interrogation, though I'm a bit disappointed I'm not on the other side of the glass. We're keeping this one off book. Oh, but you were tempted to put me in there, weren't you? Hmm. I need to ask you something. And you might not like the question. As if that's ever stopped you before. Ask away. I need you to tell me everything you can remember about your friend Jay. And his book that contains the names of the elders we've both been chasing this whole time. We might have to find it. And I think... I think it's the reason he's not around anymore. Oh. Well... You're right, I suppose. I don't like the question, but I'll answer it. Of course I'll answer it. After all, what else can I do to be useful? Dooley? You ask me a question, I'm answering it. My memory's not as sharp as it was, so let me gather my thoughts. It's impossible to tell you everything about my time with Jay. So I'll tell you how we met and what I know of his work. And the last time I ever saw him. I was very young the first time I met him, though I felt very accomplished. I'd just made officer, barely in my twenties, but already making the family proud. Back then, people would still call it Toronto the Good and mean it. And here I was, serving as one of its protectors. However, there was this feeling of uncertainty, an encroaching dread that came with the smell of industry and soot-covered streets from all the coal and construction work. That's one thing that hadn't changed. There's always construction in Toronto. If it ever stops in my lifetime, I don't know if I'll recognise the city anymore. Back then, I didn't know about the Oris. Either kind. The worst I thought I'd have to deal with were belligerent drunks, but there was this one night, I was... I was just on the street, you understand? Didn't even go up to the room, but it was a murder, and it was only weeks into my first patrols. It wasn't the last. I kept getting called onto those scenes like I was gravitating towards them, like I was being pulled by some unknown force. 
some of them started showing a pattern that shook me to my core as a closeted young man. Homosexuality was no longer criminalised, but everyone still had a lot to fear. In my case, I was afraid of my family, I was afraid of my peers in the force, and the so-called fruit machine of only a decade prior, and afraid to feel like I belonged in the bathhouses and taverns on Yonge Strip. Made me quiet, reliable, respected, but hardly liked. Everyone just thought I was good at my job. Nose to the grindstone, so I wouldn't have to look at exactly what I was doing or see if anyone truly saw me. The first time I remember looking up, it was one of our late-night patrols on the strip, one of our officers giving a man a hard time. Now, I was very good at de-escalation, real rare talent for my lot, so I told my guy to calm his head, and from what I understand, the civilian was trying to cross some police lines. One of the apartments that was under investigation, a body found in bed on the second floor that morning. After I was sure the other officer had his back turned, I finally met the civilian's gaze. <sighs> Bright eyes, broad smile, not one I'd ever forget. Handsomest man I'd ever seen that wasn't off a magazine or a billboard, I thought. It was hard to believe he was real. Introduced himself to me as a journalist for the local paper, following up on the recent homicide. Call me Jay. He said, shaking my hand like we were already friends, only minutes after meeting. Read my name off my uniform, asked me if I had information left out in the press release like he was making small talk. Probably knew his charms were working on me, the smooth bastard. I'd gained a reputation for being unflappable in most situations, probably why I kept getting called to handle crowd control for the worst scenes, but when this man was up close, all that was out the window and he had me blushing like a schoolgirl. But even then, I didn't cave. I apologised, profusely, but I didn't let him take a single step up the narrow stairway. Sorry, sir, still a fresh crime scene, but once we get word, we'll know what information we'll be able to share. If you give me your information, you and your paper will be the first to know. He was gracious about it, but looking back, I think he got exactly what he wanted anyway. I didn't know it then, but I remember him thanking me and pulling out an old but well-maintained pocket watch from his coat. When I next turned to see him leaving, he was already gone. I thought I missed him, but I'd later find out that was just his secret weapon. A magical tool he'd gotten his hands on, though he would never tell me where or how. All I know is what he showed me, when we'd eventually work more and more cases together. He was really good at secrets, because he gave you just enough... He never seemed to hold anything back. Like a magic trick, the stage kind, not the real kind. You were so busy watching one hand waving for your attention that you didn't see the other slipping something into his back pocket, or casting a spell he learned from Lord knows where. I certainly didn't know. What I did know is that it was all learned. It wasn't from him. So at any time, if he wasn't careful enough, it could be taken away. And though I worried, he was careful. He never let anyone get too close, even when it seemed he knew most everyone in the city. Never let anyone know his real name, not even those he said he trusted most, myself, <laughs> and a woman named Elaine who he'd met in one of his earliest cases, covering the fall of Hyde, a small Ontario cottage town that burned down in the 40s. There was also this young man, 
who admired his work, a bit of a tag-along, Peter something. I can't say if Jay trusted him as much, but he helped where he could. Jay had a pseudonym with the press, but he told me well into our sometimes partnership that it wasn't his name. James Callahan trusted me enough to say it was from his parents. You can imagine my shock when I found out he had two fathers, his dar and his papa, living in secret for as long as he could remember. The way he shared that, I remember seeing the cracks in the mask. Vulnerability that I thought he was too self-assured to possess. I think he wanted me to say something at the time, but I was too young. I was too stupid. Too afraid he'd see all the things I feared and hated most about myself to notice that maybe... Maybe it was something he wanted to see. Maybe I would have learned to hate myself less with him, if I let myself. Or maybe my memory's just going and I want to pretend it meant more than it did. At the time I thought of us as friends, working partners, falling in with each other whenever something strange happened that I needed a second expert opinion on. In the beginning, we'd run into each other by accident. I'd see him at crime scenes, greet him with equal parts wariness and shy enthusiasm. I got to the point that some of my fellow officers would call me at the office if Jay was around, call me to take care of my nuisance journalist. Sometimes it would be a call of some urgency, and I'd find him the way I first found him, earning the ire of officers I did not know. A subtle edge to his charming smile. Don't get me wrong... He didn't ever really need my help, but he knew he had it. Always. Over time, I asked him to keep me in the know when it came to his strange encounters. I'd had him on the phone when the case proved a little too out there. Over time, it stopped being an accident. Weeks, months, years of cases, missions, really, that began as something frightening and unknowable and turned into something frightening but familiar. And often enough, the calls weren't all about work. Sometimes he'd trick me into watching a film with him at the local grindhouse, invite me to a bar, introduce me to his friends in the bathhouses. Visits designed to make me uncomfortable, I thought, at the time. Though nowadays I realise it was my repressed, buttoned-up self that was the issue, and he just wanted us to have a good time in between all the horrors. There is this one time I remember most fondly, There was this hill overlooking the necropolis. He'd take me there at night and we'd drink while the moon shone down and he'd tell me stories of the strange and wonderful things he'd seen when I wasn't with him. Made me realise how much older he was than me. How much more life he'd lived. I have a photo he left behind. I found it in his apartment weeks after he was gone. It's in a box. I'll bring it over. It was clearly taken from the L, and it feels like a puzzle he wanted solved, but I never did. Maybe you'll have more luck with it. Whenever we worked a case together, I'd write things down in a notebook, make sure I kept a record that I could analyse and go over later to try and make sense of the supernatural chaos I had become swept up in. But when it was just us... No case to go over, no mystery to solve. I was a bloody idiot. I didn't pay attention. I didn't read him as well as I should have. I was too wrapped up in my own head. I didn't see the signs until it was too late. I'm sorry. You need information. Let me go over his tools. 
He always carried with him the following items. A notepad on which he would write shorthand as a journalist. I have it mostly decoded, but there are some major gaps in my knowledge that you will need to fill. A leather-bound journal, small enough to carry in a bag or in the pocket of his trench coat, in which was a silk ribbon bookmark, which he once told me, and I quote, hid him from those who sought to thwart him. Most importantly, his well-maintained but terribly old-fashioned vintage pocket watch. It was, from what I could gather, the source of his magic. It seemed to respond to his will, but worked far better with direction, spells and chants that he designed with a little help, he said, from a strange friend and ally that he would never let me meet. Oh, and also his last resort. A tiny revolver that was about as large across from his wrist to the tips of his fingers that he kept hidden at all times. You'd be surprised how many of these supernatural types forget that they can still get shot, he'd say. You said these things that the elders use. You, you, you said you think they're foci. I, I don't know if that's what Jay had in his strange old pocket watch. It didn't seem to run out of magic, you see. He'd use it so often to save us from threats beyond what I could even comprehend, but I, I don't know if he was charging it or if he simply relied on its power being infinite. And then there was the ribbon. It was simple, but had a charm affixed to the end, acting as a bookmark to his little leather journal. He told me it kept us both safe, and I trusted him, though I didn't quite know how it kept us safe. Was that one of those foci? You mentioned before, there, there were good ones. I haven't seen enough of them to know, but I have met one of those elders you mentioned. I didn't know they had a collective name, but I know that was what this man was. He had a love of literature, and he went after Jay's friend, Elaine. I believe his name was Clifford. Clifford Bolden, though he's long since been taken care of, and all his horrific collection with him. Fuel for a fire, and the world is better for it, though I don't often say that about books. There are others, but their names weren't really the first thing on my mind when I had to avoid getting slaughtered by a bloody scythe-wielding maniac in the midst of fields and farmland, or keep myself from getting my vocal cords plucked by an opera singer with her throat sliced and flayed open. You know, just a few little adventures, and I hear you're fast collecting your own. But no matter how terrifying it got, I just focused on watching Jay's back and helping him do what needed doing and he always, always protected me even when I wasn't the priority in the face of saving the city but that was just how he was. He had the lofty spirit of a neighbourhood hero but his art was selfish enough to not sacrifice those close to it. Not even for the greater good. I know I'm on record right now, but what I'm about to tell you, I want you to never share this recording with anyone else, for your ears only. I know the value of recording things, especially in our line of work, but this, look at me. Tell me I have your word. You have my word. <sighs> Alright then. It was right at the tail end of the 80s. It was not a great time for this city. It's the last time people ever said this place was Toronto the good and unironically meant it. Jay would disappear for weeks at a time and when I tried to help he told me it was better for me to not get involved and I trusted his judgement. I kept busy anyway. The city was restless and afraid and I had a job to do. 
Every so often, he'd ask to meet up on the hill. I'd come, and I would find him a wreck, bags under his eyes, smoking with an unsteady hand. Ask me how I was doing. Like I didn't know he was on the edge, but we were both men of our time, and it wasn't done. I couldn't just reach out and trace the lines of his face, ask him what was wrong. I couldn't hold him close and tell him everything would be all right. Even in this place, when nothing touched us but the midnight breeze and the moon and the stars overhead. But I wanted to. God, I wanted to. <laughs> Most of those nights, we just stand in the silence. I'd wait for him to be ready to talk. He'd look at me like he wanted something I couldn't give, even knowing what I did of his parents. Even knowing how the ladies and gentlemen of the bathhouses greeted him like he was a regular. How he appreciated soft curves and hard lines. The beauty of others without judgement or shame. I wanted to be like him. I wanted to be what he liked, and I think he was waiting for me to admit that every night we were alone together on that hill. But he couldn't wait forever, because there were things nipping at his heels that he wanted to protect me from. Wanted to protect his loved ones from. And from what I knew, while there were only three people on that list, well, three others, I suppose it's silly to pretend that he didn't love me. I met his papa and his dar just once when he was still around. His dar was one of the few survivors of Hyde, the town that burned down and took hundreds of people with them, were soldiers from the war coming home to nothing but an ash pile. I sat with him, I drank with him, and he crooned a quiet, sombre lullaby while I heard Jay and his papa argue in the other room. I hope, his papa said to me, eyes glaring daggers, though I knew his anger was not for me, that you're able to convince him better than us not to be so goddamn stupid. I was in fact not able to, in case you couldn't tell. When we left that night, Jay asked me to not go see him again. I did not honour the request. In the months I spent looking for him, I went to his father's for answers, but they knew about as much as I did. I spent time with his dar when his papa passed. Jay didn't come to the funeral, if he was even still alive, but I remember there was this woman there. Beautiful, blonde hair, well-dressed, a timelessness to her that struck me the moment I laid eyes on her. Stood further back, as though she wasn't part of the gathering. Came close after everyone had gone to lay a flower on his grave. I always thought that was strange, that she wasn't among the others. I have no basis for this claim, but I didn't think she was quite human. Maybe a friend of Jay's he'd made along the way. One of the things he never told me about. Near the end, Jay told me he was working on something big and he worried it would affect me and my family in some way. He asked me to stay away, for my own good. I refused to. I felt like something was off, so I told him that if he didn't keep me in the loop, I'd come find him anyway. So, he told me what little he could tell me. He had caught the attention of someone with more power than he anticipated. He called it, Them... The right hand, or the red hand, and he told me that he wasn't sure if the ribbon could protect him any longer. 
He'd been working for weeks to find a solution, and it seemed like, regardless of his experience, and his knowledge, and his tools, he was at a loss. For the first time since we'd met all those years ago, he was scared. And I was so afraid for him. I convinced him to let me help, however I could. Reminded him how many cases we'd solved together, how much we were able to do, watching each other's backs the way we did. Like you and Murphy, years of partnership, even against all odds and all the strange and frightening things that go bump in the night. And just for a moment, he seemed hopeful. Like he really believed we could do it if we were together. He said he'd gather information and he'd come back to me when he was ready so we could face the threat. As we always did. Together. Nothing for a little while. And then, midnight or night, I was home, getting ready for bed in my lonely little bachelor's apartment, when there was a knock on the door, and I found Jay standing there, features stark in the hallway light. He looked dishevelled, though that wasn't unusual in those final days. And I asked him if it was time, and he said, No, I just wanted to see you. It was strange. I asked if he was alright, and he said he was. I reminded him that whatever he was planning, he'd better make sure we'd do it together, that he wouldn't do something goddamn stupid like his papa had told him. Do you know? he said. I waited. I wanted you to be the one to do it, though he didn't explain what he meant. I would have gone on waiting, he said. But now there's no more time. And he leaned in, like he... <laughs> like he meant to kiss me, and I was enthralled, and I was afraid. And then a few doors down, one of my nosy apartment neighbours slammed the door open and I pulled away so as not to give myself away to the glaring old woman who stared daggers at Jay when she realised he was there. In an echo of the first time we met, Jay pulled smoothly back like nothing was wrong and gave me a winning smile. Hands in his pockets, but this time I didn't see the chain of his pocket watch where he usually had it, and I could not see the shape of it in his clothing. He held hand out, as if to shake, and I saw bruises. I wanted to stop him. I wanted to tell him to come in, so I could ask him what really happened that night, but there were eyes on us, and I was afraid. So I shook his hand in goodbye. And he left, giving me a last jaunty wave, and that was the last I ever saw of him. To me, he left his notepad, and I took the things he left in his apartment since there was nobody left to take them before they'd be thrown out. To Elaine, he gave his leather-bound journal with the ribbon, and I only found this out when I saw photos of her after her funeral. One of them are candid, where the ribbon peeks out from her things in her bedroom, but I don't know where that book went. I went to see her a few times after he disappeared, but she lied to me about the journal and I don't know if it was because Jay asked her to or simply to keep it safe. To his parents, I didn't want them involved. I visited his dar, treated him like my own, but it didn't take long after his papa died that his dar followed suit. 
I know he adored them. If he was still alive, I couldn't imagine why he wouldn't come see them in the end. I don't know what happened to him. I haven't a clue. And I keep reliving that moment, the last time I saw him. I'm wondering what I could have done differently. I mean, <laughs> there was a lot I could have done differently if I were less of a coward, less hateful to myself of the person I wanted most to be, but I was convinced I had a duty to avoid being. But age gives you perspective. And everything I feared most seems so far away now. I don't have pride so much as exhaustion at this point. None of it ever mattered, and I suffered for nothing when I could have found more joy in between all of the horrors just like Jay did. It kills me that everything we did was for nothing, that people still die because of these elders and their cursed foci, and I never figured it out. And the only person who ever could have just vanished, like he never existed, with nobody left to remember him but me. Right then, I will send you everything I have. Maybe you can make better sense of it than I. Thank you, Dooley. And no matter what you find, if you find out what happened to him, please tell me. No matter what happened, promise you'll tell me. I promise. <sighs> You're a good kid, Mikey. Wait, let it run. I just... You know. I used to use these for investigations. I never understood why. I never thought I'd see them after CDs became a thing, but sometimes, if you listen closely, you'll hear something caught on the magnetic tape. Memories. Even from those long gone... You're listening to Hainai by Motsi Dapul. Hey everyone, it's Motsi. I hope you enjoyed our Pride episode special. This episode features Leon Johnson as Donner and Alistair Stewart as the retired Detective Dooley. I want to let you all know that Hai and I will be taking a much-needed break to prepare for Act 3. We'll be back in September with brand new Hai and I episodes. But in the meantime, we need your support now more than ever. If you can, please donate to our fundraiser on Coffee so we can pay our actors and editors more, and more fairly. That's ko-fi.com slash Hai Pod. H-I-N-A-Y-P-O-D.
you can also subscribe to our Patreon. We're doing some pretty exciting things over there in the lead-up to Act 3, including bonus episodes, behind the scenes, and our soon-to-be-implemented early access to main episodes. So if you want to see Hainai come back just a little bit earlier, subscribe to us over on Patreon at patreon.com slash Hainaipod. That's H-I-N-A-Y-P-O-D. It's also a great way to get ad-free episodes since we're now monetized on most podcast platforms. Consider it. And as always, thank you. We love you. And now more than ever, hanggang sa muli.